Hi, I'm Mark Rodman. Coming up, we'll take a look at President Biden's first 100 days, get the latest from the General Assembly, and COVID-19 creates a major backlog in North Carolina court cases. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by... NC Realtors. State Employees Association of North Carolina. Mary Louise and John Burris. Reifenberg Construction. Stefan Gleason. And Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Join the conversation, Mitch Kokai with Carolina Journal. Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Nelson Dollar, senior advisor to North Carolina Speaker House. Mitch, why don't we begin with a review of President Biden's first 100 days, my friend. April 30th will mark President Biden's 100th day in office. And ever since at least the days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the first 100 days has been seen as sort of a significant milestone about how well a president is doing in advancing his agenda. We know that President Biden has a very ambitious agenda, much of which involves rolling back a lot of the things that his predecessor did. The good news at this point for him is that he has pretty high approval for what he's doing, a recent poll suggesting 59% approval for Joe Biden compared to just 39% for Donald Trump at this point in his presidency. To put things in perspective, Barack Obama had about 61% approval at this point. Now, we know that some of this may have to do with media coverage. The Media Research Center took a look at how well the three major networks were uh, covering the presidents and said that at this point in Donald Trump's presidency, he had about 1,900 combined minutes in coverage, and 89% of it was negative. Meanwhile, President Biden, at the same point, about 700 minutes of coverage, only about a third as much, 59% of it positive. But regardless of whether the, the media is having much of an impact, the president is getting pretty high marks for the vaccine rollout. There's pretty good support for the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief plan. There are some potential bumps in the road. We have the situation down at the southern border. There's also seemed to be lukewarm support for the infrastructure plan, and there could be some pushback on the court backing plan. We, of course, will see what President okay. Biden has to say about his first hundred days. He's going to have his first joint session of Congress and address before them coming up on Wednesday. Joe, you have the floor, my friend. What's most interesting to me is, of course, in the first term for any president, they're immediately thinking about the midterm election. In 2022, we'll have an entirely new set of congressional maps all across the country, razor thin margins really in terms of democratic control of Congress. And the popularity of the president becomes a major part of what in effect is a referendum on their term in office. And that midterm election historically has gone against the party in control of the White House. I think Joe Biden feels a sense of urgency to get some accomplishments that Democratic candidates for Congress can get back out and campaign on when the session of Congress is over. I think the president's also trying to establish himself as a contrast to Donald Trump in terms of how he comes across his presidency and communicates. We'll see how effectively he's able to get things through this Congress. Democratic control, again, very tight. There are already some conversations okay. in terms of his infrastructure package, having a compromise with Republicans to come up with something that he can get through. Nelson, are you surprised at the speed of this agenda and how fast he's been able to implement some of it? 
Uh, yes. And of course, Biden is on track to set historic records in government spending and debt. And at some point down the road, this will lead to unprecedented tax increases. Uh, on the foreign policy front, uh, Biden has continued Trump's policies in Afghanistan, China and Asia in general, uh, where he's created uncertainties or areas where he's changed policy. So, for example, trying to revive the Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, they have ongoing talks, and Iran, of course, is increasing uranium enrichment. Uh, Biden granted Russia a five-year renewal of the START treaty with no concessions in return. And, of course, as Mitch mentioned, the policy uncertainty at the southern border is leading to a renewed uh, immigration crisis, and that is an area where polling is showing that Biden is receiving his lowest marks. Joan, to wrap this up, my friend, in about 40 seconds, put it for, in context for us. For better or worse, President Biden has made politics boring again. And for much of the American public, there hasn't been many, there's actually only been one news conference. The president's messages, extremely tight, very well rehearsed. And for viewers and for people, it's a nice difference from being overwhelmed by the constant attention that either was put on Trump or Trump gave himself. And the consequences of that is there are real issues going on, like at the border, like with Iran, and like this government spending. But for Biden's advantage, yes, it's been uneventful, at least in terms of the messaging from the White House. Okay, we'll continue to follow this. I want to move on. Give us the latest from the General Assembly, Nelson. Uh, Mark, Wednesday was an emotional day at the General Assembly. The House unanimously passed uh, HBL 370, which is the No Veteran Left Behind Act. That expands the Veterans Justice Intervention Program, and that's designed to avoid unnecessary criminalization of mental illness among veterans and ensure their families uh, and those vets have access to a range of treatment services and assistance. Uh, the program is also in partnership with local law enforcement agencies and federal agencies. So wounded veterans were on the floor of the House chamber uh, during passage of the bill. And then they were also honored by the leadership of all three branches of government uh, at a signing ceremony on the Bicentennial Mall that establishes uh, April 24th each year as Wounded Heroes Day in North Carolina. It was an outstanding day uh, for bipartisanship and honoring the sacrifice of those who have given so much to keep our country free. Jonah, what have you been following? Well, I'm very encouraged by the bipartisanship. I think what Nelson just talked about, about the veterans bill, but I think you go back to the school's reopening bill as we start to come out of this COVID crisis, and that's setting the momentum, what I hope and what North Carolinians hope for, is a good, robust, and bipartisan push for the budget. After all, that is the most important function of the General Assembly, how to divvy up 25, 26, 27 billion dollars of your taxes, and how to keep this government moving. We didn't have an agreement last time. So can we keep up this bipartisan momentum and get Governor Cooper and some of the more moderate Democrats and, of course, the Republicans who control the General Assembly, where are they going to come to an agreement on big things like education funding, teacher raises, health care? Will they expand Medicaid? Can there be a halfway point that maybe the governor will stick to? That's what I'm following is how will this momentum carry over into the spring and summer negotiations, which is that budget? You know, Joe, I think the big story this week is uh, Julia Howard being removed by the speaker of her finance chair. 
Yeah, the, in an unusual move, perhaps, uh, Representative Howard, longtime member of the General Assembly and a chair, uh, one of the co-chairs on the House Finance Committee, uh, at, uh, at odds with the Speaker on a particular piece of legislation dealing with the payroll protection program uh, grants that businesses got, a uh, question of the state coming in compliance with the federal standards for the deductibility of the expenses businesses had associated with administering that. Uh, the result, uh, Representative Howard was removed from her chairship on the Finance Committee and placed on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the impact of that is. Representative Howard, with tremendous institutional knowledge about the construct of the state budget, uh, now that she's not involved in that process necessarily going forward, there may be a slight loss of what knowledge she has about the best way to put together a spending package. Mitch, talk to me about where the bill is on the governor's powers and reducing the governor's emergency powers. Did that clear the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, I think? Is, is that correct? Yeah, and in fact, uh, after all this talk about uh, bipartisanship, I'm going to talk about a couple things that are partisan. One is that bill, which would uh, scale back the governor's emergency powers during a time of an emergency. We know that the Emergency Management Act has some loopholes that allow Governor Cooper or any governor to be able to extend some emergency declarations beyond the time when an emergency would normally be considered to be over. That's a bill that's moving forward, as you mentioned, in the Senate Judiciary Committee. There's another bill that doesn't have to do uh, particularly with the governor, but actually with the attorney general, and it would end collusive settlements between the attorney general's office and plaintiffs okay. with which the attorney general is friendly. That one's moving forward in both the House and Senate. Okay, I want to move on. Joni, you had a really good story about COVID-19, its impact on North Carolina courts. Well, anyone who's been involved in any court proceedings, you know meetings give birth to hearings, which give birth to conferences. Maybe it'll lead to a trial. Now add in the fact that the courts were closed for a number of months because of the shutdowns, plus with social distancing requirements, needing to sanitize, empty the courtrooms, put them back together, there's been a tremendous backlog and an overwhelming burden on the courts when it comes to the thousands upon thousands of cases. We're talking at the district, the superior level, more than 10,000 cases backlogged. They're not even there yet in family court. 150,000 district misdemeanors and then felonies. Also in the 15,000 range, we're talking about DUIs. These are, you know, it's not just an inconvenience. We're talking for families in the court system you know, custody battles that are put on hold, temporary status and foster care. We're talking about some justice not being carried out. I had an opportunity to speak with the new chief justice, Paul Newby, and the challenge is, well, you can do things virtual, but at what point then does that threaten due process or jeopardize due process? A witness is entitled to see who else is in the courtroom, and how can a jury judge someone on a one-dimensional screen? You know, Mitch, uh, defendants are uh, due a speedy trial. What's the impact on that? Yeah, it's uh, certainly going to be a, a negative impact on that. I think Jonah mentioned the fact that he talked to Chief Justice Newby, and he came into office saying that having the courts open is a constitutional duty, but you can't overcome the physical limitations. Those courtrooms were built to pack a bunch of people into a small space in a time of social distancing and concerns about a virus. You just can't have people in the courtroom and still have the normal operations. I think this is going to be a long-term problem. It also reminds us that the court system of the three branches of government tends to be the one that gets looked at last. And in terms of funding for any upgrades that are needed, that's going to be a challenge. Joe, your thoughts? 
this is just one of many institutions that have been impacted by COVID-19 and have necessitated looking at how we provide those services of government. Courts, certainly, we need to make sure people have access to justice but in any number of other ways, education, and, and even in the very uh, essence of what it takes to put together a legislative session, having to meet remotely has become a feature of COVID-19, but we're not quite there yet. As, as both Mitch and Jonah mentioned, I mean, some sense of the historical way we've gathered to form public policy, whether it's the administration of justice or the enactment of new laws, has been that we are putting all of the people who have a say in that in the same room, and that provides a level of confidence and transparency to the process. Conducting business virtually is far more efficient and effective, but I don't know that we're quite there yet in terms of giving people some sense of assurance that that process is as fair as having people meet in person. Nelson. Yes, as soon as Chief Justice Newby was sworn in, he said justice delayed is justice denied, and he immediately began reopening North Carolina's courts. And uh, the Chief Justice and his team are providing the resources and expertise to increase uh, remote access to our courts. I've seen their uh, setups that they're working on implementing in every courtroom in the state of North Carolina. Uh, the Senate has already passed major legislation to authorize remote audio uh, video proceedings in court. There are procedures uh, that are being, that have really already been developed. Uh, we are hoping that this new additional COVID money are really gonna come in and help us in addition to the uh, e-courts initiatives that are already underway to modernize our courts, to allow us to be able to uh, operate court online and to be able to be efficient and safe with our court system. So I think the future of the court and the ability to overcome pandemics and other issues like this in the future uh, is actually on track. Great conversation. I want to talk to Joe. There was an interesting Pew study, Joe, on the Internet and who's using it. Yeah, very interesting. Their analysis showed 7% of Americans say that they're not online. They don't utilize the Internet in their daily lives. I guess, Mark, this just proves you were right to poo-poo my notion many years ago that the Internet was just a fad. And <laughs> sure enough, we'd be back to three-by-five index cards any day. But the interesting interesting thing to me in this study was if you looked at within the demographic who is least likely to be online, there was a correlation in uh, the age category. Those of folks that they surveyed over the age of 65, 25% of them said they did not live uh, in online existence. And then on an economic basis, households with an income of less than $30,000, 14% of them responded that they're not online, where households with an income of $70,000 or more a year, only 1% of those households were offline. Now, if you go back a few years, Pew did a study on the internet and the likely impact it would have going forward. There was one expert who described that internet existence is flowing through us like electricity in the future, that it would be inseparable from our culture and society and politics. But the interesting dynamic is this, as much as the internet makes our lives easier and it's changed the way we have uh, conducted our political discourse, it's created and maybe exacerbated some of the sense of division, but there are no boundaries or borders on the internet. It may be that nationalism and senses of individualism are blurred as a result of the continued proliferation of the internet. And we'll have to see, do people come to trust and rely on the internet in a way that they are very skeptical about now in terms of the information they get online? Great points. What struck you, uh, Nelson, about this report? 
Well, I think about my father-in-law. He had a landline and cable TV. He didn't think of himself as being offline, and he didn't need to be online to connect with his community, his family, uh, and, and, his, and his church. When I look at uh, Pew Research going back to 2013 and 2019 studies, as Joe said, this is a generational shift. And it really reminds me, you go back 100 years when automobile ownership uh, soared over the space of two decades. That fundamentally changed how we live. So the Internet in combination with the smartphone is uh, having that level of societal impact now. And the real question is, what's next? What's past the information age and how will that change us? Jonah, your thoughts, my friend? Well, Vice President Harris just made a trip to North Carolina, and she was speaking about the proposed American Jobs Plan. And in that extended definition of infrastructure is broadband connectivity. And this is an issue that, you know, we talk about racial disparities. This one doesn't really discriminate based on color, because this is also an urban and rural divide. And there are many places. You go out only 30 miles outside of Raleigh. You go to Chatham County, Moore County. These are places where not only do they have limited connectivity, they only have one Internet provider. Provider. So there's no competition. They're paying high prices for kind of mid-level service. Is this a utility? Is this infrastructure? It's beginning to you know, really support the, the notion that, yes, it is. Mitch, dramatically, though, Internet use has changed uh, a lot over the last 20 years. What is it? Seven percent are, are, are not online now. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an important thing. We, we talked earlier about the economic gap and also the age gap. The economic gap, I think, is of concern that if you're in a household that's making less than $30,000, you are much more likely to be without internet, but that's the type of thing that you're going to need to be able to advance economically. I think the age issue is taking care of itself. Uh, if you look at some changes from 2019 to today, from the 50 to 64-year-old age group, 12% in 2019 were offline. Now it's just 4%. So I think basically, as people who are used to using computers and the Internet get older, you're going to see that age gap go away. Great rap. Let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. This could be bad news for some public school students, uh, but because I'm talking about summer school, the State Board of Education adopted this week the rules that are tied to a program put in place by the General Assembly that's going to guarantee more summer school to deal with COVID-19 learning loss. Now, the Board of Education put in these policies. It says that each school district has to offer 150 hours or 30 days of summer school. Now, it is voluntary, so so for some of the students listening, if your parents don't want you to go, you don't have to go. It's going to be geared toward at-risk students, but any student can go as long as there is space available. And in the early grades, it's going to focus on reading and math. From third grade on, they'll also add in science. There are also special provisions for high school students. The whole idea is to try to make sure that all of this learning loss we're seeing from COVID-19 doesn't become as substantial as we fear it could be in the years ahead. Jonah, underreported, please. A lot of talk about police reform, criminal justice reform in the United States as well there should be. But if you go across the pond and you go in France, know the name Sarah Halimi. She was 65 years old, a Jewish woman who was brutally beaten in an anti-Semitic attack. But the perpetrator, 
cannot be put on trial because in France, the judge has ruled the person cannot be held liable because he was high. So because he was on drugs and because therefore he was not in a normal state, he will not face any justice. Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, is now calling for that law to change. But, you know, this is an instance where if you think about it, if it didn't happen to a Jew, if it happened to somebody else, you would think it would get a lot more headlines. Nelson, underreported, please, my friend. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, as in the aircraft carrier, the HMS Queen Elizabeth, in November of 2019, the global or the uh, naval chiefs of the United States, UK, and Japan signed a joint global operations agreement on board uh, the Queen Elizabeth. In a few weeks, that aircraft carrier's strike group uh, will sail on their first deployment through the Mediterranean, the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea, on their way to Japan for joint exercises. Uh, that group includes a U.S. destroyer, the Sullivans. Uh, they will also be flying F-35s off her deck, uh, the United States Marine Aviation Squadron, the Wake, Al uh, Wake Island Avengers. And combined uh, with these three countries, this will be the most powerful a fully integrated naval force uh, that we have seen in the Eastern Pacific since World War II. Can we expect more of these exercises? Yes, we can. And you are seeing a fully integrated naval force between Britain, the United States, and Japan that you've never seen before. And, you know, folks like the Australians are going to uh, join into that and possibly India as well. It's a tremendous counterbalance to China. Joe? Interestingly enough, another study out of the Pew Charitable Trust relative to what they characterize as unauthorized immigrants coming into the United States over the past decade, a slight increase in people from countries other than Mexico falling into that category. The, the most significant growth has been individuals coming from Central America and Asia, and some of that is a result of people staying beyond temporary visas. Uh, we're seeing a change in the way that uh, the United States is seen uh, across the world in terms of a destination for people from other countries. Uh, it probably all speaks to the absolute need for wholesale immigration reform in this country. But we're, we're going to have a different sense of what it means to deal with the immigration issue because the expectation that it's all people coming in from Mexico is, in fact, changing. Let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? Who's up bond referendum voters if the General Assembly approves Senate Bill 265, which would require that when people go to the polls to vote on a bond, you'd see more information about the interest rates on the money that would be borrowed, the uh, local community's debt capacity, also how much property taxes would be affected, so more transparency. Who's down? Drivers in Charlotte. Police there say that they've had an alarming uptick in road rage incidents, at least 40 so far this year, 20 of them involving guns, 10 arrests, and authorities are blaming the COVID-19 pandemic and people who've been so irritable now finally getting back out on the roads and being angry. Jonah, who's up and who's down this week? What's up is what it means to have effective counsel. In the Derek Chauvin case, the ex-Minneapolis officer convicted, that was a textbook case of an adequate prosecution. It was a methodical case calling of dozens upon dozens of witnesses. They took their time. It wasn't just splashing video. And that led to very swift justice for, uh, for George Floyd. Uh, what's down uh, the science? 
There's no reason in the governor's news conference that they just announced that kids going to summer camp outside should have to wear masks. We know a lot more now than we did a year ago. If more than 77% of the highest risk okay. adults in North Carolina have a vaccine, that means the most vulnerable are protected. Joe, who's up and who's down this week, my friend? Who's up is auctioneers. Uh, State Senator Tom McGinnis, Republican, uh, representing the 25th District, Anson, Moore, Richmond, and Scotland counties as a demonstration in anticipation of next week is Auctioneer Appreciation Week, auctioned off the state seal behind the podium in the state Senate chambers. Uh, it came at a high price. We know the two figures in our seal, plenty, would bring a high price. But of course, the other figure, Liberty, is beyond a value. Okay, uh, down? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, who's down? The unemployment rate in North Carolina continues to tick down under the national unemployment rate at 5.2% uh, for the last month. We continue to be a strong economy as we recover from COVID-19. Okay, Nelson, who's up and who's down this week? Uh, who's up? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who was recently pra praised for his knowledge and handling of the pandemic by none other than liberal commentator Bill Maher. Uh, he said that DeSantis used science and, quote, uh, protected the most vulnerable population, unlike the governor of New York. Uh, who is down shipping containers. Uh, there's a global shortage of shipping containers. This is a snarling uh, supply chains worldwide, and analysts primarily blame a slow processing of container cargo at, you guessed it, American ports. Okay, what's the headline next week, Mitch? First state of the state address since COVID-19 features points of cooperation, but also continuing divisions. Jonah, headline next week. Governor Cooper issues new executive order easing restrictions, but still frustrating many North Carolinians. What will we be frustrated about, my friend? I think, well, he already announced that he's going to be loosening all restrictions, hopefully by June 1st. But I think the dangling the carrots about a mask mandate, unless that's fully repealed, I think many people are going to be very, very upset about it. Joe, headline next week. All eyes on the state house to see if there's a round two between Representative Julia Howard and Speaker Moore. What do you think happens? I, I have every reason to believe everything will move forward appropriately. I think Representative Howard's been around a long time, and uh, perhaps she'll she'll see that okay. there's a value to remaining engaged in the process. Nelson, headline next week quickly. Uh, Governor Gibbs, state of the state address, Speaker of the House Tim Moore provides the Republican response. Great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by NC Realtors. State Employees Association of North Carolina. Mary Louise and John Burris. Reifenberg Construction. Stefan Gleason. And Jane and Van Hemp. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.